Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Dave. I'm, I'm the other elder not named Matt, and it's a, it's a joy to be with you this morning. So I've got, I've got my daughter's iPad here, a bottle of water, microphone taped to my face, collared shirt that's tucked in, and so I'm facing the reality that it's time for me to preach my first sermon. So you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and start turning to Colossians 2. We're going to be in Colossians 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one on one of the tables in the front or raise your hand and we'll try to get one to you. Guys, I'm, I'm really excited about our passage this morning. I'm excited to see the Lord work through his word. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, in your providence, you're having us open a passage that's all about the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Father, wherever we are in our walk with him, help us to see Christ this morning. Holy Spirit, would you make much of him this morning? Jesus, I pray that we would leave here just in awe of you and be changed by your word and transformed, that we would treasure Christ more. And this is for your glory. Be with us now, Jesus. Amen. So I want to introduce you to a man named Charles Steinmetz. How many have heard of Charles Steinmetz before? Yeah, so, okay, early 20th century, you can see him in that photo right there, right in the middle with the light-colored suit. He was a genius mathematician and engineer, and he was friends with guys like uh, Edison and Tesla, Tesla and Einstein. His nickname was the Wizard of Schenectady, which, the Wizard of Schenectady, which seems like the worst nickname ever. Uh, in, in the April 1965 issue of Life magazine, there's a story about Mr. Steinmetz, and I think it's going to be helpful for us this morning, so, so let me share it with you. So Henry Ford, I think we've heard of Henry, Henry Ford. Henry Ford had a factory in Dearborn, Michigan. Ford's electrical engineers couldn't solve a problem they were having with one of their gigantic generators. And so they called Steinmetz, who was an employee of GE at the time, to come and take a look. So when he arrived, Steinmetz rejected all assistance and asked for only three things, like a notebook, a pencil, and a cot. Steinmetz spent the next two days and two nights listening to the generator and scribbling computations on the notepad. And on the second night, he asked for a ladder. He laid it against the side of the generator and climbed up and made a chalk mark in a certain spot. He told Ford skeptical engineers to remove a plate at that exact mark and replace 16 windings from the field coil. And so they did as they were told and the generator performed perfectly. So Henry Ford was, was thrilled until he got the invoice from GE in the amount of $10,000, which was a lot of money at the time. So Ford acknowledged Steinman's success, but balked at the figure and asked for an itemization of that bill. And so Steinmetz, being the character that he was, responded personally to Ford's request with the following. Making chalk mark on generator, $1. Knowing where to make mark, $9,999. So Henry Ford decided to pay the bill. So I'm sure that you've heard the equation, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You should see it on the screen there. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. I know it's cliche. We've heard it a lot, but I'm not going to apologize for it this morning because it turns out this equation is going to perfectly describe our passage that we're looking at in Colossians 2. So Paul's writing to the Colossians to address an issue that's come up, like things aren't working like they're supposed to in, in your first century church. And so you might get a letter from Paul. And so they did. So in this case, there were some teachings in the church where they were saying, yes, Christ is important, but he's not really enough. 
He's not really enough to truly flourish in life. We need to be defined by more than just Christ. Or There's more things we need to do to be accepted by God than to just trust in Christ. And so Paul talks about them being taken captive. It's a word that implies being almost kidnapped by certain philosophies and human traditions, verse 8, or, or worshiping angels and going on and on about visions, verse 18. Some of the Colossians were saying that they must live in, ex, in extreme forms of dis- discipline, verse 23, or follow legalistic rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, verse 21. And so Paul's calling all of this out, and he's saying it's self-made religion. I think that we, we hear that, we might think, you know, I don't really struggle with angel obsession or any of those things. But I think if we, if we think about the Colossians' temptations in sort of broader categories, I think we start to see the way that Jesus isn't enough plays out for us. So I think it's often one of two things. Take a look at the slide. Either am I living like he's not really enough to truly fulfill me? Or do I feel like he's not really enough for God to truly accept me today? So am I living like he's not really enough to truly fulfill me? Or do I feel like he's not really enough for God to truly accept me today? So I think for us, it's the familiar stuff of life where we are. Like, like yes, I need Jesus to be fulfilled, but also I need a, a best friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a wife or a husband, or I need a single family home eventually and two kids and Ryan Shaughnessy's green grass, or I need to send my kids to the best schools or I'm in school, so I need to get the best grades or I need at least one epic vacation every few years so I can see the world or I need to get that next promotion so that I can be financially secure. or I need to follow a particular workout regimen or I need to get to a certain weight or eat a certain way or receive a certain number of DMs on my birthday, or I need to follow some, some, uh, I need to do something fun this weekend, or I need to show that I'm different than other people in the way that I express my individualism, or I need my political agenda to occur. I need to feel like I'm making a difference in the world. I need to be healed from my illness. I need to be accepted by my peers, or I just need to be comfortable. I think some of these things are really good, but are there things that I feel like I need to add to Christ to feel like I'm truly living and feel like I'm truly satisfied? Or I need Jesus to be accepted by God, but but if God's going to be pleased with me, then I have to read my Bible every day, and I have to attend church and small group every week, or I have to be discipling someone, and someone has to be discipling me, and I have to serve in at least two ministries, and I have to share the gospel with someone once a month, and I have to have my neighbors over for dinner, or I have to not fall into that sin again this week, or I have to live up to who I think I should be, or I have to live up to who people around me want me to be, or I have to live up to who God's called me to be. Again, some of these things are good. Some of these things help us. They're tools that help us grow closer to Christ, but are they things I feel like I have to do so that God will accept me and feel good about me today? And so that's where the church at Colossae is. And I think that that's where we are sometimes. And so what Paul's doing as he's writing this book is he's, he's taking his chalk like Charles Steinmetz and he's drawing a circle. He's drawing a circle for the Colossians to call to their attention, to get their eyes on the only one they need in order to have life. He says, don't get caught. Don't get kidnapped by the other stuff. I haven't circled that stuff because that stuff's not the main thing. In some, some cases, it's not even true. In some cases, it doesn't even matter. And take a look at the end of verse eight. He says, all these things, here's the problem with them. They're not according to Christ. They're not Christ, and so we can't treat them like they have the power that Christ does. So Paul's saying, if you have Christ, you already have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. I think the crescendo of Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, is where Paul says, Christ is all and in all. And so our big idea this morning is this. 
You began in Christ alone. Keep going in Christ alone. Christ is everything. You began in Christ alone. Keep going in Christ alone. Christ is everything. And Paul's about to show us that, and he's going he's gonna to describe it to us as walking in Christ. Walking in Christ. So that's our title this morning. Let's go ahead and read our text. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 says this. Therefore, and we've talked about why the therefore is there. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, so as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So our first point today for walking in Christ is this. We walk in Christ by looking back at who and what we received. By looking back at who and what we received. So we just read verse 6. Take a look. It says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So Paul's telling them, look back. Like, remember who you received and don't move on from him. So I think if we're going to look back, I think it would be helpful if we could actually know some details about who and what the Colossians actually received. So turn back one page, chapter 1. And take a look at verse five. So Paul is, is thanking God for their faith. And halfway through verse five, it says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. It also does among you since the day you heard it and understood. Listen to this, the grace of God in truth. So the Colossians received the gospel, which is the grace of God in truth. John 1.17 says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so before we talk about this, this grace of God and truth, I want to touch on this word receive that we saw in, in, in chapter two, verse six. So go ahead and turn back there. Chapter two, verse six, this word receive. So imagine, imagine someone paid for and shipped you an Amazon package. You can see it on the screen there, uh, right in front of your house, I think if you asked Amazon if you've received this particular passage, they would adamantly say, yes, indeed, you have received it. You guys have probably seen those photos that Amazon sends where they take a picture of, of the package um, in front of your place and then just to kind of prove that it's there. But that's not the word that Paul uses for receive here. To receive it, according to the word that Paul uses, you have to, you have to walk to your front porch, pick up the package, take it inside, cut the tape, open the box, work through the styrofoam, pull it out and use it. And so now you've received it. So I want to call out um, three things about this kind of receiving. We see there in verse six, this is what we need to know. So one, um, this kind of receiving is not by merit. It's, it's, it's a gift. It was something that was delivered or handed off. Um, it's something that's grasped and held on to. It's, it becomes their own and it's something that's real. It's something of substance. And so the action of the sentence is, is to receive, but the object of the sentence is far more interesting. Of course, it's Christ Jesus, the Lord. So Christ is the one who was delivered as a gift. Christ had become their own and Christ was real and life-changing. So I think it's fair to ask ourselves, do I have Christ? Has he become my own? Is he real and life-changing to me? But think about when you receive a good gift. It doesn't make a, a ton of sense to just focus on the receiving and the opening of the gift. I think that our eyes should rightly and fairly quickly shift off of the receiving of the gift and onto the beauty of the gift itself. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, remember, it is not our hold of Christ that saves us. It is 
Christ. It is not our joy in Christ that saves us. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and marriage. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. So Christ is who the Colossians received and Christ is who Paul is encouraging them to continue to hold, to hold on to. But let's, let's circle back to, to talk more about the what they received. So, so the grace of God and truth that we saw in Colossians 1. So sh- shifting gears a little bit, let's put our Old Testament hats on. You remember um, 1 Samuel 5? Anyone remember 1 Samuel 5? The, the Philistines were, had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in the same temple as the statue of their false god named Dagon. And the next morning they woke up and they found Dagon face down on the ground before the ark. And so they stood him back up. And then the next morning, what happened? They found the same thing where Dagon was face down, except his head and his hands had been cut off this time. And so eventually the Philistines decided it was probably not good to have the Ark of the Covenant in their presence and that they sent it back to the Israelites. So look up that story and and it's kind of an interesting way that they sent it back. But um, the Israelites got the Ark back and they tried to look inside and 70 of them were struck down. And so the Israelites are in mourning, but they remember something and they say this. They say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. Dagon could not, the Israelites could not. It should be on the screen. I have to share this. 1 Corinthians 15.1, it's so similar to Colossians 2.6 that we have to see it. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, and hold on to that word remind. We're going to come back to that word remind. I remind you, brothers, of what? Of the gospel, which I preached to you. So it was delivered, which you received. Same word received, we we just looked at, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And so now we're ready that the gospel, the grace of God and truth that the Colossians received by grabbing a hold of in faith and the Corinthians are standing in is this, the Colossians and you and I are more sinful and flawed and broken than we'd ever want to admit. And because of that, we're not able to stand before a holy God because Because of our sin, we deserve to be struck down and separated from him, just like Dagon and just like the Israelites. And yet on the cross, our sin was transferred to Christ. And even though he was the only one who could stand before his father, because he was bearing our sin, God struck him down instead of us. And so if if you receive Christ, as the Colossians did in faith, if you open that gift and not just let it sit there on the front porch, but if you open it by acknowledging your sin and your need for him to pay for it and surrendering control of your life to Christ, to ask him to be in the position, as we see in verse six, of Lord of your life instead of yourself, then instantly Christ's perfection will be transferred to you and he will stand you up before a holy God as one who God sees as blameless and holy and loved and accepted, not on your own merit, not on your own record of obedience, but entirely on Christ's. And if you haven't done that yet, I'd encourage you to talk to someone after the service. Just, just mention the part where it seemed like Dave got serious and it, and it mattered. But there's one thing that I need to be clear on. This, this wasn't a call to the easy life. I just offered you a life where you give up being on the throne. You give up calling the shots in favor of the one who created you and died for you. 
Like it means whatever script that you have for your life, God might lead you to just rip it up and throw it out. He's going to take you places that you didn't expect to go or ever thought that you'd want to go. And it can be scary and fearful. And sometimes it doesn't feel safe at all, but it's so good. And you'll be filled with a joy that's inexpressible because you will have found the one that you were made to walk in. So that's the explosive, radical message that came to the Colossians. That's the gospel, the grace of God and truth that they received. And so that was my way of describing it, but far better. Listen to how Paul describes who Christ is in chapter one and two. Take a look at the screen. Who is Christ? Colossians one, it says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He created all things for himself. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's the fullness of God. He reconciles to himself all things through his blood. He presents you holy and blameless and above reproach. In other words, he stands us up before a holy God. And what has he done? Colossians 2, what has Christ done? It says, in him we are filled up, leaving nothing wanting. In him we were spiritually circumcised by Christ's obedience to the law. In him we were buried and raised. In him we were dead and made alive. In him we were forgiven all of our trespasses. In him our debt was paid. In him victory over the enemy was secured for us. If Paul was standing here, he could drop the mic and walk off the stage. All right, so so now we know what the Colossians received, and so how can we walk in it? This word walk, it's, it just means to live or conduct your lives. Like everyone's going to live their lives. We're all going to walk. That's not the question. But the question is, how will you walk? What will you walk in? Will you walk in him or will you walk in something else? So I think there's a clue for us in how we can walk in Christ. It's verse seven. Um, take a look. It says, just as you were taught just as you were taught. So, so there's some things in life where we only need to be taught once, like riding a bike or, or driving, and then we're pretty good after that. And sometimes we even get better. But there's other things in life where the further removed from the teaching we are, the more we forget and the worse we get. And so this is one of those things. So our second sub point this morning is we need to be reminded of the grace of the gospel over and over and over again. So turn back to Colossians 1, verse 23. It says this, Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of a gospel. Hebrews 2, 1 says, we, much, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And so we're hope shifters and we're grace drifters. We're hope shifters and we're grace drifters. So we shift our hope from Christ onto something that isn't Christ. And we drift from knowing that God relates to us by grace through faith into acting like God relates to us by merit through obedience. And so we're hope shifters and we're grace drifters. You ever drive on an empty highway and you just kind of let go of the steering wheel for a few seconds just to kind of see what happens? I don't recommend this on 66. Um, I have a teenage daughter in the room, Erin, so I kind of hesitate to even share this. But um, so even if the road's straight, I think that your car is likely at some point to drift out of the lane. We just bought a, a 2019 minivan to replace our 2018 minivan, and it's got some technology that we haven't seen before, one of which is lane assist mode. Anybody have lane assist mode on their car? And so you press a button and it'll start recognizing the lane lines and automatically keep the car from drifting out of the lane. It works okay, not great. I've tested it on curves, um, but here's the thing. So Honda programmed it that so that unless your hand stays touching the steering wheel, lane assist shuts off on its own. 
I think we live in a world where so much of life is based on our performance and so much of life is focused on self-gratification. It's so easy to drift away from the gospel and shift our hope off Christ and we don't even realize we're doing it. And so the lane over here to the left is Jesus isn't enough to satisfy me. And the lane over here to the right is Jesus isn't enough to satisfy God on my behalf. And so when Paul says, just as you were taught, I think it means that we need the lane assist of constant gospel reminders so that we can stay in the lane and be walking in Christ and nothing else. So how do we get the gospel in front of us? How do we ensure that lane assist stays active? We keep our hands touching the steering wheel. And so we put ourselves in front of God's word and in front of God's teaching and with God's people. And so you say, okay, Dave, this is just another sermon telling me to read my Bible every day. Absolutely. Yes, that's true. We absolutely need to do that. But there's, there's something more here. Because we have this tendency to drift from the gospel, I think we can actually read the Bible but not see the gospel and not see Christ because we're not looking for him. So I think we can open God's word and end up having eyes on ourselves and end up bringing a pharisaical self-atonement mentality instead of seeing the finished work of Christ on our behalf. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Tim Keller says that if Christianity is like a surgical knife, then the gospel is like the point of the knife. If the surgeon doesn't use the sharp point of the knife, then it doesn't go in precisely and it's not going to do its job. So a couple of clicks to one side of the point and we have legalism, a couple of clicks to the other side of the point and we have cheap grace. And so we need to read the scripture with eyes to see Christ and to see the gospel or it's not going to have the intended effect. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he was, he was talking to some disciples and it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So it turns out scripture isn't about me. It isn't primarily an instruction manual for me. It's the story of who Christ is and what he's done. You may have heard this before. Um, J.D. Greer gives like a five-minute talk where he imagines what Jesus might have said on the road to Emmaus. And so I'll quote the first 30 seconds of it. Here's how it goes. He says, in Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you met with God. In Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who was greater than Moses. In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face all your giants alone. In Kings, I was the righteous ruler. In Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. And he goes on and he, he finishes the rest of the Bible and says this, it's always only ever been about him. He's the center of it all. And so how did, how did the disciples respond to Jesus uh, on the road to Emmaus? Take a look at verse 32. It says this, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? 
the sharp point of the knife made its incision. All of scripture is about Christ. Are you looking for him and seeing him when you open the word? Am I opening my Bible first and foremost to get some instructions or get some answers for how to carry out my day or solve my problem or just get a, check, a box checked? Or am I opening my Bible first and foremost to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ, to get Christ? I'm kind of going off script here, but this morning I was feeling a little anxious about preaching and, and I, was, I was reading in my regularly scheduled Psalm 49 um, and I was not following my own advice. So I was hoping to find a verse about overcoming anxiety or something like that. And then about 20 seconds in, I got to verse seven, which says, man cannot pay another man's ransom before God. And then verse 15 says, God will pay man's ransom for us. And so he showed me Christ. Like I didn't need scripture about overcoming anxiety. I needed to see Christ this morning. Charles Spurgeon says, I've never yet found a text that doesn't have a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that doesn't have a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. If the sermon cannot do any good without a savor of Christ in it, can my time with the Lord do any good? If you close your Bible after reading a passage with your coffee at 7 a.m. or with your small group or one-on-one -on -one discipleship and you haven't seen Christ, my encouragement would be to open it back up. Like if you have Christ, you already have everything. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing. Are we going over hedge and ditch if we have to in order to find him? But here's the thing. We're not capable of doing this on our own and we're not meant to do this on our own. We have a helper. A couple of years ago, these new glasses came out to correct color blindness and all these videos started popping up. I don't know if you saw them where um, colorblind people were putting on these glasses for the first time and just bawling, just crying uncontrollably. And what strikes me is that all the colors were already there before they put on the glasses. They just couldn't see them for what they were. And then suddenly the glasses go on and they're just this explosion of life-giving, vibrant colors surrounding them like they've never seen before. And the world looks completely different. John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. And so the Holy Spirit wants to show us Christ in his glory. The Holy Spirit is our glasses. We need to invite the Holy Spirit every time we open the word, help me see Christ. Like, help me see Christ. And if, if you see him, if you, if you are seeing him, you'll want to make your joy complete. First John 4 by sharing him. Like you want to share him with others. If enjoying Christ stops with you, then you're not really enjoying the fullness of Christ. So we're made to be conduits of Christ, not just consumers of Christ. Why do we have national parks in the middle of nowhere? It's because someone saw something that was so beautiful and they said, wow, like I've got to show this to somebody else. I can't keep this to myself. Come and see. So we walk in Christ by looking back at who and what we received. To do that, we need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over and over again. Second point for walking in Christ is this, and I promise the second and third points uh, will go faster than the first, so don't worry. We walk in Christ firmly rooted and continually built on a secure foundation. Firmly rooted and continually built on a secure foundation. Take a look at verse 7. How do we walk rooted and built up in him and established in the faith? So do you get the feel there? That's It's rock solid. Like I, lo I love this section because... The words have this sort of interplay between passive, something done for us, and 
active, something that we should do. So having been rooted, we're being built up, we're being established, but implicitly it's also be rooted, be built up, be established. So what's been put on us in Christ and it's being put on us by Christ is the same thing that we need to put on. This idea that that gospel-given identity drives corresponding gospel-motivated activity. So gospel-given identity drives corresponding gospel-motivated activity. So what's the identity here? We're rooted and being built up in Christ. So picture Christ planting us into the fertile soil of a relationship with him and growing our roots down so that we can begin to grow up. What do roots do? Two things. Roots anchor the tree and they provide nourishment. So in Christ, that's true of you. You've been rooted. Your identity is that you're anchored and secure in Christ and he's nourishing you to give you life and soul satisfying joy so you can grow up into him and produce fruit. And he promises to sink your roots deeper into the ground because he's made you his own. The other promise in verse seven is that we're being built up. So this word, it's like a, it's like a, like a strong building being constructed. You ever drive by a, 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 a construction site and sometimes you notice, you know, you can tell exactly what they're working on that day. But a lot of times you look at the construction site and it just seems like they're not, you can't identify exactly what they're doing. But Christ, Christ is continually building us up in his time, in his way. Sometimes we can't see exactly what he's doing, but we can, we can be assured of this. He's building us on a secure foundation. And so that's our gospel given identity, but what's the corresponding gospel motivated activity? Be rooted and be built up in Christ. So sink your roots deeper into Christ, draw up nourishment from Christ. The thing about roots is that they're often hidden. Like it's the part of our walk where we're Christ, with Christ that, we're, that others don't always see. So are you spending time alone with him? Are you seeking him in his word and in prayer? Or are you just, are you just going through the outward kind of visible motions of acting like a Christian? Solidify your dependence on the secure foundation of Christ. So why be rooted? Why be built up? There's, there's so many reasons in the New Testament. Um, I'm just going to pick my favorite because of time constraints. So we're being strengthened for the storm. We're being strengthened for the storm. So at the beach, sometimes my mother-in-law asks me to help put her umbrella in the sand. Here's the thing. I'm not very good at it. And so I try to get that shaft down into the sand and I try to kind of pile some, some other sand at the base and just kind of hope. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission put out this helpful notice. Take a look at the screen. You should see it. It says, fear the spear. And so it all happens at once in dramatic fashion where you're just sitting there reading under the shade. And then all of a sudden, a gust of wind, a gust of wind comes and the umbrella shoots out and it's now tumbling down the beach. And you jump up as fast as you can to try to avoid it, avoid it impaling some stranger. And so in a split second, a poorly rooted umbrella can go from doing its intended purpose to provide shade for its recipients to being a weapon aimed at people on the beach. And it happens so fast. Isn't that us sometimes? Like when the storm comes and we're not deeply rooted in Christ, instead of giving life to the people around us, we suddenly become uprooted and we can do harm to the people that we love. Have you seen that? I've seen it in myself. But just like the umbrella owner running down the beach, Jesus leaves the 99 and he comes running after us and he grabs us and he sinks us back into the ground and reminds us that's exactly where we're made to be. Remember Luke 6, 
We've heard this where the man builds his house on the rock and Jesus says, when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it. Let's sink deep roots into Christ to be strengthened for the storm. Our last point this morning is this. We walk in Christ with overflowing and increasing gratefulness for grace. We walk in Christ with overflowing and increasing gratefulness for grace. Look down the last part of verse seven, abounding in thanksgiving. This word abounding, it's like a river overflowing its banks. I love genuine gratitude because it's inherently unselfish. Gratitude protects us from pride. It's like a grace preserving ointment. Thankfulness is actually mentioned more than 70 times in the New Testament because it's something that matters to God. So when a parent tells a child to be thankful, I think in some part the parent you know, wants some appreciation, but I think more so, I think the parent is trying to teach the child something, trying to, trying to help change the child's heart in some way. So I think gratitude is one of the tools God uses to change our hearts and to grow us. So think back to, to our Amazon gift. Picture a gift this time that would really make a difference to you. It's, it's something that you know, probably wouldn't fit inside of an Amazon box. I don't know what it is. Just, just the sky's the limit for what this gift is. So why are you grateful for that gift? I think there's two things about the gift that makes us grateful. One, I think, I think I'm grateful for the value it is to me. And I think I'm grateful for the cost it was to the giver. I'm grateful for the value it is to me and for the cost it was to the giver. And so I think these are actually two ways that, that God uses to, to, two tools that God uses to change us. And so the first is this, the value it is to me. So turn back, turn to, actually turn forward to, to Colossians 3.12. You should see it on the screen there. It says this, Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that's our identity, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. I think the second that we read those words or really any imperative like that in the Bible, I think our eyes and our attention very naturally goes on to ourselves. Like, am I kind? Am I being patient? Am I humble? I think that's okay. I think we need to ask those questions, but look at what it says next. It says forgiving each other. And here's our first tool for how we can change. This is how it moves from head to heart. As the Lord has forgiven you. So eyes, eyes off our performance, eyes on Christ. That's the game changer. So it's one thing to say that Christ forgives. So I should imitate that, but it's entirely, entirely different to think when I was selfish and I chose myself over Christ and I needed forgiveness, Christ forgave me. Or when I was, when I'm not compassionate or kind or humble or meek or patient, Christ is all of those things to me. So are you grateful for that? Is that valuable to you? I want to do for others because I'm grateful for Christ doing that same thing for me. Anyone's met my wife, Tay, I think knows that she is kind, compassionate, forgiving, humble, at least I think she is. And that may have impacted you if you know her. But when I think of Tay's kindness and compassion and forgiveness and humility toward me, well, that makes me want to cry. Why? Because Tay lives life with me and she knows me all the way to the bottom and she sees my ugliness and my brokenness and my sin against her and she forgives me and she bears with me and she loves me. And that's what Christ does for me immeasurably more. So when I see that, it causes me to abound in gratitude. It turns duty to delight and it leads me to change. So the second reason 
we're, we're grateful for a gift, I think, is the cost to the giver, the cost to the giver. So I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on up. This is my last point. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 15. You should see it there on the slide. It says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Praise God. Christ is victorious. How did he do that? Keller says, in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, there was light. In Genesis 1, when God said, let there be trees, there were trees and plants. But in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve chose themselves over God and needed to be made right with God, God didn't just say, let them be forgiven. Because he couldn't. That's perfect justice required more. There's always a cost to forgiveness. Go up one verse, verse 14. You should see it on the screen. It says this. Our record of debt was nailed to the cross. Our record of debt was nailed to the cross. So you might picture a piece of paper with tiny print on it that lists out all of your sins, your record of debt. And you might not see it at first, but one thing I've learned as you grow in Christ, you start to realize that the page is actually two-sided, kind of like a math worksheet that you do the front and you turn it over and you realize there's more problems on the back and there's tinier print on the back. And so you might picture that paper with a nail through it attached to the wood of the cross with the word canceled in big letters written on it. And that's good. But if that's what you picture, you're leaving something out. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There's no paper. That nail traveled through the skin and then through the flesh of the one who paid for that record of debt. He put rulers and authorities to open shame only after he, the creator of heaven and earth, willingly subjected himself to open shame for you and for me. We just heard promises that we've been rooted and are being built up. Why? Because Christ was willingly uprooted from heaven and Christ was willingly torn down from the cross for us at infinite cost to himself. And when I see that he paid that price for me to purchase me with his own blood, to set me free, it leads me to overflowing and ever-increasing gratitude. So grow in gratefulness for the value and the cost of the cross and see your heart start to melt and see change start to happen. As we close, what if you invited someone to grab a cot and a piece of chalk and sit down in front of your life for a couple of days and you ask them to draw a circle around the thing that you act like you must have or you act like you must do to have life? Would Christ be by himself in that circle? Is Jesus enough to satisfy me? Do you believe that Jesus is enough to satisfy God for you? You began in Christ alone. Keep going in Christ alone. Christ is everything. Let's pray. Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are enough to satisfy us. Jesus, you are enough to satisfy God for us. Help us to walk in you as we received you rooted and built up and in him and established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Lord, you are all in all. Fill us with your spirit so we can see the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Christ. And I pray that as we do, it would overflow into wanting to say to others, come and see him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.